So, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming along to see us do the first ever live podcast show for Folklore Scotland. Uh, for those who don't know who we are, Folklore Scotland podcast is a project of Folklore Scotland, a charity founded to promote and preserve Scottish folklore. Uh, we first set up in 2018, became firmly cooperated in 2019. Uh, and since then, we've been helping utilise the technology of today to bring the tales of the past to the general public. Um, the Folklore Scotland podcast just passed its 100th episode the other week there. Um, and um, it's exciting to be able to continue to expand and grow the podcast um, with this live recording and another new episode type that we just launched a few weeks back. Uh, the Beastie Bothy, which Roisin is one of the presenters of. Due to this being a live show and us not having the usual two to three hours to witter on and obtain enough usable content to make an hour-long episode, we're a little bit more scripted than usual, so we'll have Graham reading the story, myself doing a bit of a theory, some still some general conversation about, then Roisin doing her story and Mila doing the theory on that. And as I say, there'll still be some general chit-chat instant among them, but not the usual detours of a couple of hours on an unrelated topic. So. It's an absolute pain in the neck to edit, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of it doesn't even end up on the live no. finished edition. So. <laughs> so I'll introduce you to our panel today. I'm David. I'm one of the co-founders of Folklore Scotland and also a presenter on The Cranog, which is this style of podcast that we're doing today. Uh, we also have Mila Georgieva, who has been with us since episode one of the Folklore Scotland podcast, and Roisin McCrimmon, who is practically new to the podcast, only having joined us on episode three, so just a young one at 77, 97 episodes in, um, and who is now also co-hosting one of our other monthly episodes. Last but not least is Graham Johncock, who has been a presenter on the crown since its early days, and who is the man behind Scotland Stories, and who has a book out on the 1st of October called Scotland Stories on Something like historic tales from incredible places. Something like that. Just off the top of your head. Available yeah. in all good bookshops. <laughs> or Amazon. Which you should definitely buy. So. Uh, and up first today is Graham. So we all know Scotland is a land of magic. From spellbinding scenery to enchanting stories. And don't forget especially magical whiskey. And these are all positive, inspiring forms of magic. So what happens when somebody takes a considerably darker path? And that particular somebody in this story was known as the Wizard of Rain. And he was originally just plain old Donald Mackay, fairly well-off landowner from the very far north of Scotland. But even his considerable wealth and advantage in life wasn't enough. Something compelled Donald to leave Scotland, make his way to Italy and there to study the dark arts under the devil himself. Now, it wasn't like the devil to do things for free. So as payment for his knowledge and power, he would take the soul of whoever was last to escape his classroom. And at the end of the lessons, all of the students were packing up, preparing to leave when Mackay realised he was stuck at the back of the queue. But the canny Scott was wise to his teacher's plan. So as he approached the door, he quickly shouted, Deal take the hindmost, and bolted outside, leaving the devil with only Mackay's shadow in his grasp. And now it's not usually a smart move to fall out with the devil. And the shadowless Mackay knew his teacher wouldn't rest until he had claimed what was rightfully his. So the man from the north decided to return to the area that he knew the best. He wasn't daft enough to spend much time at home. Instead, he made a secret lair hidden in the depths of Smooth Cave, becoming known by locals as a Wizard of Rain, which is another name. That area of Sutherland is known as Rain. 
So today the cave place hosts thousands of North Coast 500 tourists every year, but back in the Kai's day, it was a quiet, isolated spot in a remote corner of Scotland. Perfect for devious, dark magic. If you've never been to Smoot Cave, I would highly recommend it. It's not quite so considered quite so remote anymore, um, but it's a gargantuan cave with an underground river, a waterfall that flows through the roof with three big cavernous chambers. So it's just as mysterious as it's always been. Then a wizard of Ray became notorious around Sutherland, a cruel and ruthless figure with no shadow, tormenting the local population. One of his favourite activities was to chain people inside Smoo Cave and just watch as they drowned in the rising water. It's not particularly magical, but it gives you an idea of his general character. On one occasion, Mackay managed to conjure up a host of little imps who were forever bound to do his bidding. The swarm would eagerly set themselves any task that the master appointed without rest, and it would be finished in no time at all. What more could a wizard want, especially since he was still the Lord of Ways, who had plenty of landowning responsibilities, and at first it seemed like an excellent outcome for Mackay. They ploughed his fields, they harvested crops, they built grand houses, all while their master just sat and watched, smiling. However, the problem was, he finished every job so quickly Donald couldn't keep up. These wee imps' only purpose was to be busy, and they couldn't stand just sitting still. So every time a task was done, they would relentlessly pester them and shout, work, 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 in his ears until eventually he ran out of useful things for them to do. So Mackay started asking them to do meaningless things like dig holes or drain locks, but every single time they were back at his door before he had time to rest. The imps were shouting and wailing for new instructions, but now all the wizard wanted was some peace and quiet to go to sleep. Then he had an idea. Mackay instructed his army of imps to go down to the beach and create ropes out of sand. And once the strands were long enough, they were to turn them into a bridge that would stretch across the Pentland Firth to Orkney. They would be able to walk across without getting his feet back. Ever obedient, the creature successfully made lengths of sand rope, but every time he tried to stretch them out, they began to disintegrate. And if he left them lying on the beach for too long, the tide would come in and just wash them away. Unable to rest until a task has been completed, the imps are said to still be there, working hard on the beaches of KMS. Donald, on the other hand, well, he finally got some rest for a while. As word began to spread of this dangerous sorcerer in the north of Scotland, and eventually reached the ears of his old mentor, the devil. So one day, not too long before dawn, Ray returns to Smoo Cave from a night of magical mischief. And as usual, his trusty wee dog padded through into the second chamber of the cave ahead of him. And with a loud yelp, the hound bolted back out of the cave, straight up to Ray without a single hair on his body, and accompanied by a distinct smell of brimstone. The wizard knew what that meant. The devil had finally found him, and he was waiting inside, ready to trap him. Fleeting out into the open wasn't an option. You can't outrun old Nick. So Ray, well, he'd outsmarted him once. He could do it again. So he took as long as possible, taking his time as if nothing was amiss, preparing for what was to come. Eventually, Donald strolls inside with purpose to confront his enemy and the two witches that he brought along for company. The devil laughed and he bragged about all the things he was going to do to Ray now that he'd caught him. It didn't take much effort to keep him talking. Long enough for dawn to break, when the rising sun came the horrendous sound of a cockerel crowing, and in a panic the devil and his companion shot up through the roof of the cave and created those three holes you can still see there today. This wasn't the only devilish trap that the quick-witted wizard escaped. 
One day he found a small casket deep in Smoo Cave, and giving in to curiosity, he pulled the stopper out, and out popped a tiny man. And it grew bigger and bigger until a huge figure of the devil, dwarfed Ray, he boomed out, Well, are you impressed with my trick? And quick as a flash, Ray replied, Ah, getting out is the easy part, but I bet you couldn't get back in. Well, the devil's biggest weakness is his pride, so happily he shrunk back down. As soon as he was back inside the ball, Ray plugged the hole up, and his soul was saved. For now. Well, you know it's folklore because there's creatures in it that want to work. Definitely not real life thing. So you know it's fiction. Yeah, definitely fiction. But I find it super interesting that while both witches and wizards seem to draw their power from the devil, wizards tend to have this more like adversarial relationship. They take the power from the devil, but then can fight him. Whereas a witch seems to be more in service to the man. Typical male wants to be the boss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although this devil, I think I could beat. It doesn't sound super smart. I mean, he did need to bring some witches along for backup. So, yeah. you know. Uh, if the devil is here today, um, we'll fight outside half an hour. Yeah, square go. Square go. <laughs> he doesn't seem like... I'm kind of surprised we've not passed one somewhere here today. Surely, to surely, surely there should have been at least a demon here. Well, you never saw this tall, dark, handsome well, the stranger one... usually dressed in black. <laughs> you tried to hide <laughs> spotted <laughs> see in the parking lot <laughs> you're very very brave I think <laughs> thanks <laughs> well it's on a different slide I kind of feel bad for the imps because this wizard like a lot of the wizards we've chatted about on the podcast I feel have been kind of I don't know wisdom people well full of wisdom and generally nicer and sort of connected to the elements and he was just cruel for the sake of being cruel <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the things that he made them do and the way that he treated people is just not what we're used to I think we've had some nicer stories mm. definitely in the past um, there have been some lovely wizards walking about today yeah, and to awesome. no one's <laughs> tried to drown us true. true yeah which I quite enjoyed <laughs> but also what I find really interesting is the idea of like the rope of sand because it's not just as an impossible task but it is also something that has come up as a common phrase throughout time as well. And I kind of wonder which came first. Was maybe it was featured in the story because somebody else used it in other folklore? Or is this kind of maybe an origin story of that phrase? The Rope of Sand one is one I came across quite a bit in the research as well because there's examples of challenges either by the devil to people to make a rope of sand or to the devil to make a rope of sand or, or unrelated with of you can only be bound by ropes and this kind of thing as an impossible task and I'd seen references to it in Scottish folklore, English, Irish, German, all of which you kind of expect to have some similar themes as they all have kind of Celtic origins and came to Christianity around about the same time which tended to influence how these older legends were adapted with the devil playing a central role where perhaps they didn't initially. Uh, but it was quite interesting to see as well that it was seen in Arabian folklore as well, this rope of sand idea as being linked with uh, an, an, a task that was fruitless and um, somewhat linked with, with folk tales regarding the devil or sinister spirits as well, um, which I think is something that comes up in folklore a lot of comparing actually have they shared this legend about or this idiom or is it something that has been developed separately in these different areas? 
something I find always quite interesting to have a look at. Well, definitely a common theme. Sorry, Graham, on you go. As we know, Scotland invented just about everything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Scotland was first, and then Pangaea formed around us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Still in our kilts, then. Uh, but no, I'm thinking more like the impossible task is a really common theme in folklore, but it's normally the hero does the impossible task and therefore proves that he is a hero. So it's interesting to see the Wizard of Ray just giving it to a couple of imps like, oh, I heard Hercules did this, but these lot, this lot will be able to. <laughs> so the imps have failed heroes. Or failed, failed heroes. heroes. Uh, that is exactly what I'm saying. And I think they should take it to heart. <laughs> Quite like as well in your telling story, Graham, that there was... The bit to do with the deal pack behind most. I don't know if you actually mentioned it in this tale, did it? Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, but it's one of the typical phrases that were used at the time. But I, I only ever think of two haggis by Burns when I hear the deal pack behind most phrase. So I'd have a little look just to see actually where it originated from. And um, I can see that it went back to the 16th century as a very common phrase, just to originally mean you know the, the last person won't benefit or won't receive any aid. Uh, and then gradually became kind of scorning statement of deal to to, to criticise society or a group of people for being selfish and, and not sharing with the rest of the people. There's another one of these phrases that's like we talked about beforehand with uh, place names that change and develop over time and, and have new meanings or new words in those cases. I was also wondering about telling the story, you had two witchy friends that went with him into the cave one, Friends. well, so I feel like I just explained that evening's like, entertainment. Sort of two witches were with the devil. That's what I oh, what's the devil? Ah. Well, as, as I said, it probably wasn't the yeah, devil. And it's a thing that the devil kind of, you like what you were saying about how sort of wizards and witches kind of have this weird different relationship, but they all get their power from the devil. Weirdly, wizards seem to go off on their own, solitary figures, and witches have covens, and, and you seem to be. In the stories, they're weirdly subservient. Yeah, just want to say the devil is a man. So <laughs> that might be why. Well, I did read one version of the story to do with the Wizard of Ray that did have him have three witchy companions which he'd summoned. It doesn't really mention whether he summoned from hell or literally created them as beings, but one of the things that stuck out to me and why I, I remember it was that he described it was described as there was three witches summoned, one of which believed she was a flying mermaid. Um, who would swim in a pool in Smooth Cave, smiling toothlessly under the water, whilst the other two lightheartedly threw heavy pebbles at her. And it's just <laughs> that kind of thing in folklore it gives me a bit of a chuckle. Also, how do you lightheartedly throw heavy pebbles? This is, this, is, this is how you know it's true, because it just makes no sense. Why else? Because it's got nothing to do with the story. Why yeah. would you include it? Nice well, there we go. <laughs> and that just sounds like every girl's name, so... It's just what women do, right? I mean, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Love throwing stones at my pals. And that's the kind of tangent. I mean, sorry. So now we'll go on. I will stick the, to the document. The, the theory bit on the first story. So I did some research around the story, the kind of background, um, started researching similar stories and the witchiness that was around at the time the story was set. But I got very distracted looking at the real lives of the Lord Donald Mackay of Ree, or rather the Lords Donald Mackay of Ree, because there were three of them. Uh, only two of them were very interesting. The last one was Victorian and just was a random gentleman. But the other two <laughs> were quite interesting. <laughs> um, the first one, the first Lord of Ree, Donald Mackay, was thought of generally as being the one linked with the story. Um, and he had quite an interesting 
factual life as well, as in his younger life he was engaged in clan feuds and was appointed Justice of the Peace for Inverness and Cromarty in 1610. Two year, years later, he was made Commissioner of Peace for Southern Strathnaver before being knighted in 1616. His law and though, didn't extend much further beyond that, though, as um, due to his infidelities in relation to his <laughs> first wife, Barbara, she had him imprisoned for getting another noble pregnant and then inviting her to live with them. Um, possibly not the smartest move on Donald's part. <laughs> he was also fined 2,000 mercs in 1624 adultery. And I helped find some, uh, I found some helpful comparisons to let you see how much money that was. I'm sure you'll all agree they're, they're very useful for seeing how much things are nowadays. Uh, that equals 143,000 bricks, uh, <laughs> 2,400 litres of wine, 24,000 pigeons, or... <laughs> Enough bread if stacked one on top of another to reach 750 metres, which is roughly two and a half times the height of the Eiffel Tower. Although I wouldn't have known that because it hadn't been built yet. But, you know. <laughs> I would probably have gone to the wine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Whoever was receiving that fine. Although we did it half wine, half bread. Half uh, wine, half Yeah, well. Enough for a night. <laughs> these slight infringements of the law by Donald, though, did not alter his status in society or his ability to hold positions of legal authority. And so in 1623, the Scottish Privy Council appointed him Justice of the Peace for Sutherland and Strathnaver, uh, another promotion up in the area. So they're clearly able to enforce the law, if not abide by it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Donald went on to play a very active role in the Thirty Years' War, during which time he was made a lord in 1628. He was well-renowned in Denmark, where he lived for a time, and in Sweden, where his forces were viewed as an intrinsic part of the military. In the Dalians back to Scotland, he reluctantly became a covenanter, signing the National Covenant, an agreement signed by many people in Scotland during 1638, opposing the proposed reforms of the Church of Scotland by Charles I. This eventually resulted in the Bishop Wars, the formation of Parliament, and the eventual Civil War. Unfortunately for Donald, he decided to swap sides at that point and fought for Charles I. Upon losing, was forced to flee to Denmark, where he died in 1649 as Governor of Bergen. He'd previously sold much of his land at Ray, or Bay, Ray, I'll pronounce it right, and transferred the rest of his son due to another of his scandalous affairs involving a Rachel Winterfield, who claimed to have been his wife and bore his child. Donalds claimed, rather ironically, that he had previously had the marriage annulled, as she was an adulterer and <laughs> falsified her papers to commit bigotry. Whatever the truth, the court clearly sympathised with Rachel, ruling that she was to receive £2,000 sterling up front and £400 sterling per annum, reduced to £300 sterling once Mackay took charge of his son. That making the 2,000 mercs from earlier seemed tiny in comparison to such a large sum, which could have bought you enough high-quality ale to fill a large blue whale. Um, or, <laughs> to use a similar metric to our last comparison, 40 million bricks, enough, <laughs> enough to stretch from here to Venezuela. And it's also the amount of bricks in the Hungarian Parliament building for that sounded a lot less fun. So I would rather go to Venezuela. Yeah. <laughs> or we could maybe walk across the yeah. so, Having heard a bit about the real Donald Mackay, First Lord of Ree, could he have been our evil wizard? Well, he did spend a fair bit of his youth in clan feuds, making enemies and connections alike. No doubt in the process would have came across Smooth Cave, which archaeology indicates had been seeing human activity since the Mesolithic area. 
era, right back when Early Man first came to Scotland. He also spent a good amount of time fighting abroad during the Thirty Years' War. I couldn't say anything about a jaunt to Italy, but it could have been the perfect cover for going about some sinister deeds like learning from the devil, and certainly explain his somewhat wicked ways. The first Lord of Ray, or Ray, on one day I'll get that <laughs> right. The first Lord of Ray was also around at the tail end of the Renaissance, a time when the modern-day perception of magic and witchcraft was first formulated and promoted, starting in Italy. So could this be our wizard? Well, as with many bits of folklore, it was a dramatic and not highly reliable retelling of Scottish folk... Uh, oh, sorry, I'll try that again. So could this be our wizard? Well, as with many bits of folklore, if I want a dramatic retelling or something that's not entirely abounded by source material or oral storytelling, I look to Walter Scott, who <laughs> told many fanciful tales of Scottish folklore in the Victorian era. <laughs> um, although he decided for once to take a rather mundane view of Donald Mackay, the first Lord of Ray. Got it? <laughs> <laughs> he said, There is a tradition the first Lord of Ray went through various subterranean abysses and at, lar- at length returned after ineffectually endeavouring to the extremity of Smooth Cave. So did he commit the heinous deeds Graham so boldly accused him? Well, according to Scott, he did nothing more in Smooth Cave than badly explore it. <laughs> Looking now at our second contender, Donald Mackay, the fourth Lord of Ray, not a great deal is written about him other than he was born in 1704 and died in 1761, was married twice. So achieving a slightly lower spouse score than our first Lord, who was married four times. <laughs> which was pretty impressive for his not very long life. So (laughs) while not much is known about the Lord of Ray, we do have some accounts from relatives of the Lord. One from Mrs. Fullerton, granddaughter of the fourth Lord of Ray. I think this one provides the most concise insight into his character. She describes her grandfather as one who, though possessing a good plain understanding, graced with all the accomplishments of a gentleman, derived from liberal education and foreign travel, was yet totally unacquainted with the business of ordinary life and being from an openness of disposition, perfectly artless and unsuspecting. (laughs) You pointed me. (laughs) He's in the room with us today. (laughs) In other words, he was a man not very gifted with common sense. Put it bluntly, a fool. (laughs) Despite his extensive travel, perhaps to Italy, and despite his liberal education, perhaps by the devil, who can say? One tale that does appear to support this Lord of Ray was being as being the somewhat sinister wizard was the legend was the legend surrounding two inland revenue inspectors' ghosts. Not your typical ghost that you expect <laughs> to see, but it's rumored in Smooth Cave there are two ghosts of inland revenue inspectors. Is that like a tax ghost? Yes, it was the excise man. Right. It was ta- tax ghosts. And they've been investigating (laughs) illegal whiskey stills. They'll haunt you if you don't pay your tax. They've been been hunting down (laughs) the whiskey stills. Um, And they'd heard there was some in Smooth Cave. And Donald Mackay, the local lord, volunteered very generously to rule them out, to allow them to have an inspection of the cave. Uh, During which point he rode them under the waterfall, it got caught in the currents, and both excisemen drowned. So that caused the ghosts of those two. And he did it because he was the one who, in fact, had the stills in Smooth Cave and he was hiding them from the government forces. And the government were like, two taxmen have died. 
Oh well. Uh, clearly, there's nothing there. It's fine. <laughs> did talk about magical whiskey. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. did. So that was a, a little bit about that legend and why I think that particular one applies to the second yeah. Donald Mackay was that the first one was around in the time before Exciseman in the Highlands, so it couldn't have been him. So. I feel like I was leaning towards the first one, but I think uh, it's the second one now. So while our first lord may appear to be a character that could have been perceived like our legendary wizards, amongst his continued string of battles interspersed with affairs and marriages, time in prison, a brief bout in the Tower of London due to an accusation of treason against the Lord Ramsay, which almost resulted in a duel supervised by the king, it seemed to me have been a little bit too busy to be a legendary wizard. <laughs> <laughs> and undoubtedly, while our second lord is more fitting of the taxman legend in terms of the time frame, he seemed to be too God-fearing a man to believe in the devil. For he was said by a famous poet to prefer the, the what was it, that God in a poor man than the face of the king on gold. So to prefer God to money. And in that, be a very God-fearing man. So Yeah, but he had money. So. Mm, that's true. <laughs> easy, <laughs> easy to choose. Well, so mm. who is the legendary wizard? Well, as with most folklore, it's likely a tale that's changed over the years, pulling in pieces from many other stories and gradually forming into the tale we know today. There are several stories of men with shadows taken by the devil, one notable being the Lord of Skeen, who is said to have literally danced with the devil. The element of shrinking and trapping the devil can also be seen in parallels across folklore, including one particular tale in Icelandic folklore, where a wizard was sent ashore in Iceland to hunt for survivors of the Black Death and return by Christmas. He met a girl and, of course, as it went, didn't return by Christmas because he was very comfy. Um, and so the other wizards, there was 18 of them, the other 17 decided to set a jogger or an Icelandic zombie out to kill him. Um, but the girl tricked it, asking the zombie how big it could grow. And it grew to the size of a large tree and then saying how small it could grow. And it turned into a little fly and she caught it in a leg of lamb and plucked the hole. Yeah, probably less so than a box, but you know, this, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> Do you mean she like swatted it with the with the Lego? Yeah, or maybe the fly was like, oh, that's a Lego arm. Oh, that's that's that. <laughs> Could you not so, just? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose so, Mila, but that scoop up. Not good. Yeah, the people listening on. That was your That was the room. But then it wouldn't have the comparisons with trapping the devil in a box. Yeah, true. So true. I suppose under a glass in a box is probably closer than an illegal lamp. <laughs> anyway. Schrodinger's devil. Is he in the Lego lamp? <laughs> so the... I've lost my arm now. Sorry, <laughs> so, that's another one of those times. There we are. <laughs> the element of working fairies, well, uh, from my research, has largely seen a different tellings related to the wizard Lord Ray. There are quite a few references to fairies or fairy-like creatures who pursue extreme and endless work, such as... Graham, how do I pronounce that? Let's go for him, you trot. <laughs> <laughs> the fairy linked with a group of thread-spinning fairies who lived in a boulder, and the numerous tales of brownies who worked tirelessly for no reward. None of the other examples I found, though, seem to have specific types of working fairies that requires continuous tasks or they will turn their masters. Although, oddly, the tale of the Wizard of Ray seems to refer to those as being widely understood concepts. So perhaps the other stories about working fairies 
uh, merely escaped notice, being lost to time. So perhaps our Wizard Lord of Ray wasn't one man, or even two, but a collection of people and stories woven into a sinister narrative over the course of the last few hundred years. No, I think it's the second one. What, the second I've guy? decided, yeah, second. actually. I'm not supported by science. Okay. Well, we go around. Who, who <laughs> thinks who's who? Mila? I think this is Which I'm one think? quite convinced by the second the one. second one, yeah. yeah. Show of hands first, or for the second? None of no, them. you think it's the first oh. one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. Betrayed. For the podcast, everyone in the room was on my side. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you said the first guy was probably too busy to manage all this work. If anybody's going to be busy, it's going to be the person that can magic up people to do all this laundry, all the stuff, ink nursing stuff, imps. imps. Yeah, surely he's going to have more time to do run around the country and do stupid things. Yeah, but he wouldn't be caught if he had magic. Put him in the Tower of London, somewhere else now. He also spent a lot of time running around Denmark and Sweden and not particularly in Scotland as well. That's a good way to get away. That's true, mate. The devil comes up in Scotland, you go to Sweden. When he goes to Sweden, you go home again. Wizard holiday. <laughs> well, I've actually got a surprise fourth option, but you'll hear Wiz about that Air. later. Sorry. Oh. Yeah. Um, right near the end, because it weaves into the next story. Ready for the next one? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So from one wizard to another, Roisin, on you go. I am a wizard. Thank you, David. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Less than what I was reading, but on you go. <laughs> Sometimes those with a reputation for genius and mundane matters find their legacies are much more magical. This was the cause for Michael Scott, and that's not Michael Scott from the US office. This is a different one. Uh, he's arguably Scotland's greatest wizard. It's understandable. Haven't you ever seen someone managing to do complicated sums in their head and thought, stuff Harry Potter, this is real magic? Because I have. Um, originally, Michael Scott was a scholar, mathematician, and a translator that worked in the court of the Holy Roman Emperor in 1220. We know of his work translating Arabic texts into Latin and of his time studying the occult in Toledo University. We even know he enjoyed wearing long robes and pointed hats. Coincidence? I think not. One story tells of how Emperor Frederick challenged Michael to calculate the distance between the top of a church tower and heaven. Of course, this was simplicity itself to Michael, and he confidently produced the figures. Frederick, feeling mischievous perhaps, secretly had several stones removed from the tower steeple to reduce its height. And he said, are you sure, Mikey? Are you really sure? Why don't you check again? Why don't we just go see? I think maybe you're wrong. Well, the county Scott could not so easily be fooled, and he returned with a snarky, either heaven has drawn further away from the earth, or the tower has got smaller. So when did the actual magic and wizardry happen? Michael was a true intellect. Soon, studying how the stars affected reality was no longer enough. He wanted power over reality himself. Graham tells a wonderful story of how he gained that power, uh, that power in Campfire Tells, and that's on our website too, so do have a look. Uh, to summarise, Michael bashes a great big white snake over the head and eats it, which is the regular way of gaining powers, and that's something we all did yep. earlier today. Um, <laughs> definitely <laughs> a very scientific thing to do, gaining with it immeasurable power that was often challenged. One uh, day, Michael was visiting with the Lord of Morpeth, enjoying a warm meal and a co cold mead, when the man started asking about his gifts. In speaking with the wizard, he knew of his prodigious knowledge of seemingly everything. But those stories of the magic spells, surely that could only be the idle prattling of ill-educated peasants. 
Smiling to himself, he sought to challenge the man and see these powers for himself. And so he offered Michael a large reward if he could only bring the sea to the gates of the town. At that time, it lay seven miles away down the Wansbeck River, and this was a touch too far for a lord who craved fresh seafood. Michael rolled his eyes and shrugged his soldiers. Soldiers? Shoulders. I did write soldiers in there. So, <laughs> bad rushing. <laughs> this is an easy task, he claimed, and he would rather finish his meal. On the other hand, the all-powerful wizard had an all-powerful sense of vanity. Not wanting the Lord to believe he couldn't bring the sea to the gates, he beckoned the young man forward. Muttering a magic spell to the court, he said if this man would run from the sea to the town, the water would follow. But on no account could he look back, no matter how strong his desire or his fear. So dutifully, the man made his way to the coast, turning to run the seven miles back home. Brave. Uh, no sooner than he started to run did he hear the waters following him. A great roaring and crashing of waves swallowing the shriek of falling trees and the bellow of crashing rocks. Animals dashed alongside him, running from the thundering, gnashing teeth of the great wall of water. Faster and faster he went, and faster and faster came the ocean, never overtaking him, but always so near to his heels that he was filled with a great terror. Before he could finish the third mile, he was nearly blind with panic, swearing he could feel the icy fingers of the water wrapping around his ankles to pull him to his death. He couldn't resist. He turned round. And there, desperate to face his foe head on, and like that, the spell was broken. The sea had moved three miles inland, but would move no further. Another tale describes how Michael, wandering down near Cumbria, came upon a horrifying sight one Sunday night. A coven of witches were dancing wildly on the moor, summoning the devil to come and preside over their Sabbath. Michael had never seen a coven so large. Sixty-eight young women twirled on bare feet and tangled in unbound hair. One old woman towered over them, radiating such a powerful magical energy that Michael was certain that this was the head witch. For any other man, the wisest course of action would be to run as far away as possible. Yet Michael had his own power. He stepped into the light of the fires, illuminating the witches, raising his staff and thundering out in a booming cry, How dare you appeal to Satan on the Lord's day? Before they could react to his intrusion, he brought his staff down upon the moor with a noise like a crack of lightning. The women around him began to shriek as their leans, their leans, jinx, I need a break. The women around him began to shriek as their limbs stiffened, affixing them to the moor. Horrified faces became craggy impressions as each witch turned into stone. The tallest women, the most powerful, saw her coven begin to change and let out an unholy shriek. Calling upon her power, she grew to twice her size, battling against the waves of magic radiating from the man at the edge of the circle. She reached out a poisonous talon, but her power was no match. Soon she joined her daughters, trapped in a wide circle forevermore, and you can still see Long Meg and her daughters, eroded by wind and time, yet still standing to this day. Some say that if you press your ear against the stone, you can hear her whispering, promising revenge on Michael for her imprisonment. Michael knew he would not always be there to prevent the witches from freeing themselves, so he laid another spell over the site. No one would be able to free the woman from their petrified state unless they could count the same number of so stones twice. Silly rule, you might think. Well, no one's been able to do it yet. Unlike old wizard Ray, Michael Scott has passed away. He predicted his own death. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would be fun. <laughs> 
He, in fact, caused by a falling stone in 1236. However, legend says that this was not a true death. Michael still lives, enjoying a well-deserved retirement while having to battle the occasional fiend deep beneath Melrose Abbey. So perhaps we can one day visit him to see how much of his life was real and how much was legendary. It is quite hard to even imagine how long ago Michael Scott actually lived. Because the impact that he had on society through like, all of his knowledge in maths and science and astronomy, I mean, he lived, what was it, like roughly two, three hundred years before people like Isaac Newton. So people of his level of knowledge were probably extremely uncommon in society. And I'm kind of not too surprised that people perhaps then said, you know, he could do anything. If, if he's going to drag the water and land three miles, yeah, he can do that before dinner. Easy. <laughs> I suppose in a way, kind of how now, kind of a silly example, but like now we make all the like Chuck Norris jokes. Oh, Chuck Norris can do this, can do that. It was just an exaggerated tale just for humour. And I feel like that's kind of similar to what's happened here a little bit. People mm -hmm. just are exaggerating different aspects of his personality or things he's done or oh, maybe no. you're down at the pub and you're like, oh you won't hear what happened today that's <laughs> what michael <laughs> was up to yeah i think it kind of just grows arms and legs from there so there are, there are dozens of stories you ever read michael scott in the borders across the borders there's loads of mm. stories of him and he was in i don't know if i was going to say this he's in dante's inferno mm. yeah. yeah yeah named as a terrible sorcerer you know he's about a certain circle of hell and yeah, that's how famous he was. There was a while where he was pretty much attributed to whatever any wizard had done throughout history, so that's why <laughs> there are so many Michael Scott yeah. stories. I like the one that he had managed to get, the, well, trying to get the river to come seven miles inland, but he didn't, he didn't take any pity on the poor man. He didn't give him a horse or anything. He was like, no, you have to run. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be stuffed if I was doing it. We'd get 100 <laughs> metres in and that's how far. That would be a slow <laughs> walk with breaks. Yeah, it would just be that tight. <laughs> Uh, no, he's a really, really cool guy. I actually saw a theory that um, J.R. Tolkien based Gandalf on Michael Scott because he's this wizard wanderer. I think there's lots of different people who say he's based on whatever. But the idea that a wizard has to wear a tall pointed hat and robes does come from Michael Scott, which I thought was really cool. You can imagine somebody who's, you know, when he comes back to Scotland and is wearing essentially yeah. maybe like Middle Eastern because he's spent a lot of time out there, goes and comes back to the borders. People will be like, you are. <laughs> right. <laughs> Back then, nowadays you do what you want. Well, yeah. very Scottish. I think one of our friends went to America, came back with cowboy boots. We still talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going for the equivalent of a, yeah. an ancient magician as a modern day cowboy in yeah, Scotland. Listen, he comes back with the pointed hat and all his pals are like, here he is, look what he's wearing, you think you're so cool. Yeah, Scotland men walk around in skirts regularly. Yeah, but that's it. different, that's better. <laughs> <laughs> One part of the story that I really loved was the tale of Michael Scott and the witches. Yeah. So the, mm -hmm. um, and they, they turned the witches to stone, which is turning people and creatures to stone is quite a common thing in, in Scottish mythology um, and English as well, moving all across Britain, really. The rings of Brogdor were said to have been giants turned to stone by the sun. Uh, Stand of Stones of Callanish were said to have been giants who wouldn't convert to Christianity and were turned to stone. I think there was also one down in England, I did take a note of it, that there was an ancient king and uh, he was going to fight a mighty battle and he was going to win over the whole area and him and his knights were ready to charge and they consulted with a witch um, and she'd said something to do with if you 
are able to see the horizon within 30 paces, then you'll become the king of all, all England or whatever it was at the time. Um, and he was like, that's no problem. Like, you can almost see it from here. Um, but she put up a massive wall up in front of them and all of them turned to stone. And that's also a stone circle you can go and see as the king and his knights, similar to the witch and her, her mm. daughters. So I quite like that, that side of thing. And as well that you can't count stones. Yeah. That mainly piqued my interest because I've been playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla recently and there's a side quest that count the stones. Um, nerd. <laughs> but you can't call me a nerd at fantasy. That doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're out of it. What I did find interesting when I was searching to do with them, because I was like, surely someone's counted them now. You know, we've got yeah. ordnance surveys, we've got maps, we've got satellite imaging. The first Four results on Google all had different answers. Mm. The first said 59, the second said 69, the third drew a map, numbered some of the stones, signed others' letters, and left the rest blank, and the fourth just went with over 60. <laughs> so <laughs> it seems we may be safe from the ancient witch coven for a while yet to come. Maybe, Maybe that's part of the spell. Yeah. That yeah. people can actually not figure out how many stones there are. You'd think by now somebody would have, but no. <laughs> yeah, but look at it. He's a very powerful wizard. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Wikipedia trip advisor has He wouldn't put a silly spell on the stones. National Heritage, mm. they all have different results. Because of the spell. Even an archaeological investigation has a different result to all the difference. So. <laughs> You're confirming my theory, David. Yeah, well, there we go. Clearly real wizard, real power. Sources. <laughs> and... To quickly look, look back to Donald McKay from Trustery, because I said there was a fourth option. It's said in uh, some of the old books from the Victorian times, was one in particular I was reading that was part of the Inverness Society, the Inverness Gallic Society accounts. Riveting read, would recommend it. <laughs> um, a lot of stuff about farms and stuff, but also some fun bits about folklore. Um, and in it, it had said that in the lowlands, they tended to attribute the Wizard of Ray story to Michael Scott. And in the highlands, they applied it to the Wizard of Ray. So, yeah, I did find the uh, sand rope story for Michael Scott, and I couldn't wait to throw it in your face. So, perhaps the entire episode's just been about Michael Scott. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll rename it. <laughs> they had an awful lot of stories of wizards in Scotland. Yeah. And they all have similar things they did, similar origins, similar whatever. So yeah, maybe it's just the same, same guy, same guy, just changing names, over. pretending he's not thousands of years old. <laughs> yeah. Although the thing you said about Michael Scott dying in Melrose, it's supposed to be a stone from Melrose Abbey hit him on the head because I think he's supposed to have walked around with like a metal hat on for a while and he took it off. Spoiling Mila's bit. I was going to say is, so there was a thing saying he's, he's buried there, and I googled a while to see if I could try and find his grave, uh, and there's loads of like kings and things buried at Melrose mm. Abbey. You can't find any graves all gone a long time ago. But if you Google, there's a picture with like a thing of where the grave is supposed to be and that's not there anymore. Mm. So he had too many visitors. He was getting disturbed in his retirement. And maybe he's up and left. It's <laughs> like taking the bell off the door. He's gone off to finish that river inland that oh, he was yeah. trying. <laughs> you know when old people put something on their doors like no cold collars? <laughs> he's done that. <laughs> yeah. Although I think um, that, so that was from Walter Scott as well in The Lay of the Last Minstrel. He talks about how Michael Scott is buried beneath Melrose Abbey, but I don't think he's the only one that claims it. There's no other story that claims he dies. He's talking nonsense again, Walter Scott. Well, he, maybe he's trying to hide. No, we love Walter Scott really, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> I think about him and Larry Bird 
notes from Tuttle Lotus. We'll yeah. Talk about yeah. Soon. Definitely. It did come up a lot. Mm-hmm. Cool. So we're ready for some feedy. Okay, so the story behind the stories. So we did touch on, obviously Michael Scott was a real man. Um, so a lot of what was covered in the folklore is going to be in the theory as well that has kind of been confirmed as actually happening. Um, but I do want to delve into the timeline a little bit more um, and chat about what we knew of his life even growing up because there are not that many records. Um, a lot of it, because of how long ago it is, a lot of it is lost to time. But we do know that he was born sometime in 1175. And he lived to roughly the age of 57, which is very, very old for medieval times. Back then, the average life expectancy was probably around 40 to 50 years. So he outlived many of his peers, which probably was one of the reasons he kind of got known as this kind of almighty wizard that perhaps was even immortal. But he is rumoured to have been born somewhere along the borders. Back then, that separation between Scotland and England was a little bit more obscure. Uh, So that also kind of leads to a few issues, shall we say, in determining his exact birthplace. Um, He is kind of said to have maybe been either born near Durham or somewhere in Fife, Scotland. So you can see quite, (laughs) you can see how big uh, that divide is there. A radius. A little bit. Um, But we can follow some of that um, through through his name. So interestingly, his surname changed throughout his life and the spelling went from Scott with a single T to Scott with two T's. And one of the suggested reasons for this is that in, well, back then, um, a surname was kind of something that could hint to Scottish heritage. So surnames weren't as permanent as they are now. Your, your surname could be something to do with where you're from, what your trade was, or even just a distinguishing feature of you as a person. Or if you're someone of noble her- um, heritage, it could be a way to preserve that name over the years. But in this case, it could suggest that he was, in fact, from Scotland, potentially Fife. Um, and because it wasn't so permanent, um, these surnames, it's also one of the reasons it's really hard to trace his lineage. We also don't know much about his family. Uh, we have a record of his father, uh, because back then they didn't really reference the female side of the family. Perhaps it could be, again, with the kind of the trade side of things, that the men did most of the work, and that's how they end up on the family trees. Sorry to us ladies. Um, but that's just what you expect in the 11th century, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so his father was a Richard Galloway McFergus Scott, a very long name, Scott Singleton, incidentally. Very Scottish name. Yeah. Very. <laughs> Checked all the boxes. Absolutely. Um, but we don't know whether he had any siblings. There's no record of that. However, later in life, we do know that he went on to have a son called Duncan Scott. Um, But again, sadly, no record of his wife or any other children that he might have had. After Duncan, his son, the surname started changing from Scott to Balwiri, which is a place in Scotland. So again, that could be a hint there. Um, And I can't read my own text. (laughs) So yeah, he's slowly kind of moving north in the theories there. And you can really go down a rabbit hole kind of tracing family trees. In fact, when you Google it and look up the family tree, he is actually credited as Michael Scott Wizard. <laughs> That's actually in the kind of websites that have the family trees. Comma, wizard. Uh, yeah, it was, it was. Well, Not you, even in brackets. Some, yeah, when you just stuck your occupation on desk <laughs> wizard. Yeah. yeah. How brilliant would that be? That'd be good. Machine, comma, badass. <laughs> but that's yeah, how much... Perfect. Oh, sorry, go on. No, go on. I was going to say, that's how much people believed in the magic of what he was capable of. 
Um, but if you do want to look it up, around the 1500s, they did start to include the women in the family. So you can really trace it. It's even through to recent years. So if any of you want to find out who his current um, great, 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 great grandchildren are, you actually can. Um, but anyway, so from a young age, uh, Michael did show great intellectual curiosity, as we saw in the story. And he went on to study in Durham and later Oxford, uh, Oxford University, in what would have been Oxford's very, very early days, um, as Oxford was actually established, or rumoured to be established, only about 100 years prior to him being a student there. And at his time at Oxford, he studied maths, philosophy, theology, and all these sorts of topics. And following which, he began his travels through Europe. So he first went to Paris in France, and then in Toledo in Spain, where we heard that he learned Arabic and started translating lots of different texts into Latin and he translated all of these works of Muslim scholars bringing a lot of this lost knowledge that had either been lost through time or perhaps just wasn't available in a language that was spoken in the West um, and it just ensured that a lot of that knowledge was brought back so things like Aristotle's works on natural science and that expanded his own curiosity but also knowledge and during his time um, that he did have this passion for Arabic culture. He did start dressing, as Graham mentioned, in kind of more Eastern cultured clothes. Um, and this style choice, because it was so uncommon over here, a lot of people started to associate him as a wizard with those clothes. And also because the word wizard itself comes from wisdom. And that was also associated with monks who incidentally also wore these really long robes. So that's where a lot of those associations started. Um, and as he was building a name for himself, he also became the image of a wizard, as we know in modern times today. Um, but further to that, he's actually accredited with popularizing Arabic numerals in the West as well, which of course is what we use today. And he's said to have helped the Italian mathematician Fibonacci with his famous sequence, because if you can imagine doing that with Roman numerals, <laughs> it would look very, very different and certainly wouldn't have helped propel maths forward in the way that we've probably all learned in school. Um, another really interesting story that also credits um, Michael Scott with is bringing the modern method of whiskey distillation to Scotland, which might sound quite strange, uh, but here's why they think that. So in the records from Toledo, uh, roughly kind of mid 12th century, they do talk about a method of distilling alcohol to make what they would call a particularly strong beverage. It didn't really have much of a name. Um, and the first time it was mentioned in Scottish text uh, was kind of as, as water of life, and that was a direct translation from Gaelic. Um, so that appeared about 200 years after Michael Scott's passing. However, the correlation between the locations where these texts were found and the methods that were used and talked about, combined with Michael Scott's knowledge in alchemy, kind of did suggest that perhaps he did perfect uh, that distillation process that we enjoy today, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, but alongside his love for maths and fine beverages, um, he did also take an interest in the occult and astrology, which is another, the other half of the kind of wizard stereotype that we have today. Uh, he became known for a lot of his prophecies and he caught the attention of a Frederick II, who was a Holy Roman Emperor around 1227. And he began working for him. He was kind of headhunted to work for him. And he managed to cure the emperor of disease and he predicted the outcomes of wars and military alliances and lots of other stuff. So he was really seen as somebody who perhaps had foresight beyond what was possible on earth. He had some heavenly or other magical powers. Um, but sadly, he also prophesied his own death. He said that he would be killed by a pebble falling on his head. 
uh, and he began wearing this iron cap at all times and I couldn't actually find any paintings of it or any drawings or anything like that but I like to think that it was pointy <laughs> yeah. um, but as bad luck would have it as I said he did prophesize his own death and the one time he would ever take the cap off was as a sign of respect when he was in church and one day a pebble did in fact hit him on the head and he unfortunately fell ill and later passed away in 12, uh, 1235 um, but knowing the background of his life, I think some of the greater stories begin to make a bit more sense. Um, so things like moving the water inland could perhaps be explained by his knowledge of natural sciences and how you might be able to redirect a current to perhaps create new land formations. Um, so that for him, knowing engineering and maths would perhaps have been very, very easy. And it's really easy to see as well how through time people maybe who didn't understand what was happening would say that oh this is magic because a lot of people back then probably weren't very literate either so seeing somebody who's this all-knowing person and who's able to provide all these true prophecies um to them would have been like he'd made some sort of deal with the devil perhaps like our our first wizard of the day um but the fact he lived so long as i mentioned at the very beginning is likely the final contributing factor in that a lot in other folklore tales we've seen in the past it's usually a fairy or another creature like that that might be able to grant immortality because fairies are in many stories immortal um, so it's easy to see how the rumors might have spread about him being a wizard and he inspired so many different works of literature following his passing and he's brought i would say more than magic into the world so that's michael scott <laughs> pretty cool guy i would say so just on the <laughs> thing about last names one of my absolute favorite facts is that if your last name is Bogle, that means one of your ancestors was so ugly, they were named after. Oh, no! <laughs> so, like, literally being like, you're so ugly, your new last name is Ugly Creature of Myth. That's <laughs> just passed wow. on in time. Well, because my son is John Cock. Don't want to know It's going to be a risk, but I think you should find out. Go on another tangent. Uh, one thing I would say is I really like the fact that basically we talked about two wizards we talked about two completely different wizards one who's this evil person who did lots of horrible things but Michael Scott any story you find of him generally he's like a jovial character he just like trots around the country and does things yeah. and it's weird I don't know if it's because one wizard got their power from the devil like lots of wizards did he weirdly had a like university class in Padua in Italy don't know why it's very specifically there <laughs> well he got his from like yeah killing and eating uh, evil snake. That snake <laughs> apparently hunts people down and kills them. He was the first one to actually get it. But anyway, yeah. The I two just... methods to become a wizard. Yeah, the the skin said to study at that same school. So exactly. it must have been a general yeah. higher education yeah. place for. Well, should totally right because he's local. Where a wizard of skin, you know, you're just outside Aberdeen. Who's graves in the church that you can go visit? I like that you'd went for he was headhunted by the emperor. Yeah. Like, yeah. how'd you headhunt a wizard? Presumably not LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> you know. They had, yeah. <laughs> Facebook. In the yellow pages. <laughs> he must have been a hard man to track down in those days as well. It's true enough. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. The you just go man. past the stone, turn right, and there's a guy with a pointy hat. <laughs> yeah, help you out with your uh, building problem. Yeah. Although we wouldn't have the wizardly spectacles because they hadn't been invented yet. Oh yeah. So. True enough. 
<laughs> I do I do want to speak about witches again. I'm sorry, but I always want to speak about witches. Um, but it's weird. The wizard podcast. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Scott was never branded as a witch. He doesn't have the similar kind of... There's a lot... If you hear about witches or wizards in folklore, you often get a story that is very much like, here's how they were threatening and dark, and this is why we need to hunt down witches and wizards and kill them. Um, but that's because he existed 200 years before the, I'm not going to say it right, Maleficus Maleficorum, I think. Did I get it? Nice. Uh, which was the first like witch hunting book really written, and where we start to get this real movement towards like the witch hunts in Europe. Um, and before that, it seems to be that people were more or less ambivalent to those they thought had magic. They were just seen to be cunning people. Um, so I can't help but feel that the associations we have with witches and wizards that are um, tacked on that they were in association with the devil comes from a much later interpretation of the story. Mm -hmm. But Michael Scott's story is so well known that it's much harder to alter in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as you said, it was really when the church and the Italian Renaissance brought in the, the seven uh, fields of magic as being evil and uh, you know banned by canon law at the church that it became this thing linked with the devil and, and black magic and things like that. Mm -hmm rather than the, the Renaissance, which was the last Italian, uh, the last medieval Renaissance, which Michael Scott was part of, which, as you say, a few hundred years before. Yeah, so, yeah mm -hmm. interesting. It's just, it's just an interesting because one. Because you do cause... get evil bits about Michael Scott, but a lot of them seem to be ones that are attributed to other wizards, like the Wizard of Ray, his story said to be attributed to Michael Scott as well. There's mm -hmm. lots of other ones, but they tend to be ones that have, have other wizards as kind of the protagonist originally and have been tacked on to Michael Scott, whereas his original core stories tend to be less you're an evil, demon-possessed yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> From what I read, he seems to be just travelling around trying to have like a quiet time and all these lords keep asking him to do stuff. He never seems particularly... He's just like, fine, I'll do it, just leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he has to be Gandalf, I've decided now. Like so. I always find it impressive that he, he studied at Oxford University, but that just... In my head, like university is a fairly modern concept, like studying all these things. He was living in a time before paper was even invented. <laughs> like they just don't seem to go. It's just yeah, it was such an educated man. At the time when we see everybody as, you know, people out of uh, life of Brian or not life of Brian. What's the other one? Except Holy the Holy Grail. Holy Grail it's yeah. the serfs in the fields, not yeah. educated <laughs> men, reading Arabic and writing and Latin and yeah. Just a, a fascinating interest because mm. I, I kind of almost view the way that he went about astronomy and mathematics and science. He was kind of almost like the, the medieval Renaissance version of Da Vinci, who came mm. in a few hundred years later. Although I, I do prefer Mila's reference to him as Ch Chuck Norris instead. Yeah. I think that's a, <laughs> Da Vinci Chuck Norris. You know. Can't think of anyone else whose abilities get exaggerated so much. Obviously, not to the same extent, but I feel like. I love How that you put Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris. Sorry, when I was reading the notes, Maybe. I was like, Mila's still living in 2000. I'm, I'm a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm a boomer. And on a podcast note, we owe a lot to Michael Scott from the Whiskey Front, which yeah. normally feels us on a podcast, although yeah. not today. So. <laughs> I'll be raising a glass to him later for that. And you know what? We've had less tangents, so maybe it's the whiskey. Maybe it is the whiskey. Magical whiskey. Magical whiskey. It's great for storytelling. So is that Absolutely. everyone? I think that's everything. Right, I'll just do a wee rough wrap up then. 
Well, that's everyone. They're Phil of Scottish Wizards. One more point. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No. <laughs> Phil, it, it would be like you. <laughs> if everyone's had their Phil of Scottish Wizards, then I suppose it's time to wrap up. Thank you all uh, for coming to listen to us today. Um, and if you've liked what you've heard, please give a listen to our podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. We're pretty much everywhere, I think. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify Apple, SoundCloud. SoundCloud. Mm. Or do we do Google Sound as well? I don't something? know how that works. I think it feeds through. We might be on that too if you <laughs> listen to that. Um, and if you listen to the recorded version, you'll already know where it is. Um, and if you've not liked the podcast today, we've got two other types of podcast episode. One, the Beastie Bossy discussing, sto- uh, discussing beasts. That's right, isn't it? I've not listened to it yet. Ah. Is... <laughs> 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 Ouch. And, and it's the best one. One that is just tellings of stories. They're called campfire mm-hmm. tales. Yes. Um, so you can have a listen to those. Um, so we'll be around at the stall for the next little bit once we've packed up here. If you've got any queries or questions about anything, or any fun folk tales you might not know. Uh, please share any folk tales because we're always looking for stuff to do on the podcast mm-hmm. so if you have a story you want to hear or one that you think would be really good please let us know and we do have some prints for sale on the ballad of tamlin which is a relevant story from the south of scotland as well if you're interested in any of that so thank you all for coming thank you very much. <laughs>